thank you all so much for coming. I'm delighted to see you all here. Uh, it's dreary out there, but uh, but it's not at all dreary in here. It's very happy in here. This is a double celebration, although a little bit of a triple-ish celebration, I'm just going to say, because that's what I, I you'll see. <laughs> The first part is a celebration of balsa, and the second part is a celebration of Congressman Donald McEachin. So I'll start with balsa, without whose energy we would not be sitting here right now. Uh, balsa was founded at, the, at UVA in 1970, uh, although not formally chartered, I didn't know this, uh, until 1996. Um, and balsa, as I think all of you know, is dedicated to the development of talented, involved, and diverse attorneys uh, in the legal profession. Our chapter is an incredibly active BALSA chapter. It sponsors student support programs, community outreach projects, panel discussions, receptions, uh, allyship events. Um, and our chapter is one of the leading chapters in the national organization. I say this with incredible pride. We have been recognized you have been recognized uh, as regional chapter of the year seven times, including most recently two weeks ago. So let's hear it for the regional chapter. And national chapter of the year four times. So I, I doubt there is any BALSA chapter out there with this many accolades uh, that it has racked up. And uh, the success that BALSA has is a product of its never being at rest, always be on, on the lookout for new innovations, new events like this one, uh, how to make the school a better school for everyone, how to make the profession uh, a more diverse and equitable profession. Two weeks ago, the law school hosted a commemoration of Gregory Swan who was the first African-American law student at UVA, and he was also the first African-American student anywhere at UVA uh, in 1950, and he had never really been uh, publicly recognized by the university, and we had a commemoration, uh, and Balsa came to me and said, what, what can we do for the, the, this commemoration? And we talked about it, and I said, what do you want to do? And they said, we want to host a reception beforehand for the Balsa alumni who are coming back. And I thought, that's fabulous, and that's exactly the kind of thing uh, that our BALSA chapter does, is say, there's something happen, we should, happening, we should be involved in it, we should improve upon it. Uh, they held a beautiful reception. Um, and, uh, and a number of our BALSA alumni came back for the event, and it was beautiful to see the intergenerational conversations and fellowship uh, that went on as a result of their uh, reception. And our BALSA alumni base is incredibly strong. Some of our BALSA alumni are back today. Uh, and the strength of both the current chapter and the alumni base are a huge part of the strength of our connections between past, present, and future uh, here at the law school. So that brings me to uh, tonight's honoree for for the inaugural BALSA Alumni Spotlight Award. There were so many impressive alumni from whom to choose, some of whom are here tonight. Uh, uh, but it is A. Donald McKeachin, class of 86. And here's where the, the third honor part uh, of the evening comes in. Uh, he met his wife, Colette McKeachin, here at the law school. <laughs> He's class of 86, she's class of 85, older woman, or at least more senior. Uh, I don't know older, but more senior, more advanced and experienced. Uh, uh, there she goes. Uh, and Ms. McEachin has extensive legal experience. She is presently working in the Richmond uh, City Commonwealth's Attorney Office. And uh, we are so proud of this power couple. And you know, I've said congressman now a few times, so you know he's a congressman. But my husband, we're 
I don't know about power couple, but we, we too are both in the law. Um, and he studies local government law. And I think he would be the first to say, you're at the right level of government uh, and the more important level of government than, uh, than the national level. But um, Congressman McEachin grew up uh, in the Richmond area and he has not strayed far from his childhood, either geographically or in his approach to the world. Uh, and he, in fact, grew up in what is now the congressional district that he represents. Uh, he learned the value of hard work and community from his parents. His father was an army veteran and his mother was a public school teacher. He graduated from American University with a degree in political science before coming to the law school. And he also holds a master's of divinity degree from the Samuel Proctor Theological Seminary at Virginia Union University. Uh, he has spent a lot of time in private practice in Richmond, most prominently uh, and recently with McEachin and Gee, uh, and he has also spent a very long time, uh, 20 years, as a legislator in state government. So between the two of you, you really have local, state, federal service uh, uh, that you can uh, talk about. I'm sure there are lots of interesting conversations uh, about what level of government is the right level of government to take on a particular problem. Uh, he served first in the Virginia House of Delegates and then in the Virginia State Senate. He was elected by Senate Democrats to serve as Senate Democratic Caucus Chair in 2011. He's also a very active member of the community, a lifetime member of Kappa Alpha Psi Fraternity, the NAACP, the Virginia State Bar, and the Virginia Trial Lawyers Association, as well as serving on several other boards and commissions in service to the community. Uh, so as you can tell from my conversation, Congressman, Congressman, Congressman. Uh, in 2016, he was elected to represent the 4th District uh, of Virginia in the United States House of Representatives. He is already making his mark there. Uh, he represents his district on the House Armed Services Committee, the House Committee on Natural Resources. He's also appointed by House leadership to serve on the Franking Commission. He was also elected to serve as co-president of the freshman class, appointed as regional whip, and serves as a member of the leader's environmental messaging team. If you've had any chance to interact with Congressman McEachin, you will not be surprised that he is already playing such a leadership role in Congress as Delegate Jennifer McClellan, UVA class of 1997, and also in the Virginia uh, General Assembly with Congressman McEachin has said, quote, he's a natural leader when he sees something that needs to get done, even as a minority member. She has lots of other nice things to say about him, too. Uh, in uh, Congressman McEachin, throughout his time as a public servant, has fought to protect our most vulnerable citizens and those in need. He has uh, protected and worked for students in the public schools, people living in poverty or with food insecurity, veterans, victims of gun violence, among many others. His uh, legislative work has earned him praise from across the political spectrum. He's won awards from groups as diverse as the Virginia Sheriff's Association, the Virginia Education Association, and the UFCW Minority Coalition. I will leave additional praise uh, to the award presentation after Congressman McEachin's speech, but for now, I just want to say how proud we are that you are an alumnus of the law school, how proud we are that Ms. McEachin, you are an alumna of the law school, your service, your leadership, your commitment to the common welfare and our deepest aspirations as a nation and a profession uh, is a model for us all. We are honored to welcome you and we are honored to honor you. Thank you. Well, good evening. It is a thrill to be back here 
and to see so many faces that sort of look like ours, except y'all don't have gray hair, and I feel like I've always had this gray hair. Um, first of all, I want to give a shout out to my classmate, uh, Justice Bernard Goodwin. He is um, the reason I was able to finish the law school, because I think the statute of limitations is run, but he actually let me look on his paper <laughs> so I could get out of here. So Bernard and his lovely wife, Sharon, class of 1988, good to see you both. You call a professor, we call her Dana, Dana Matthews. Good to see you. She was a, a year behind us, right? Class of 87? Yeah. Class of 87. <laughs> and um, of course, I have to give a huge shout out to my wife of now in November, 30 years, y'all. Give her a hand clap. I know you don't call it this anymore, but we actually met in the Blue Parrot Lounge right out here in, in the hallway, and, uh, and uh, my life has been blessed ever since, and that's the story I'm sticking with. Um, but it's, uh, it's, been a, it's been a joy. We have three children, and as the last group heard me say, a prosecutor is exactly who you want raising your children. There are no shades of gray. There are consequences for your actions. Everything's black and white, and to that end, they all have graduated from school, they all have jobs, and they all have jobs with benefits. So, <laughs> um, I thought what I would do, and Madam President, I'm gonna ask you to just make sure that I don't go over too long, but I thought what I would do is share with you a little bit about my story, about um, getting into the Congress, and some of the challenges that I see for those who want to go to Congress. And um, then do some questions and answers, because I think that's my favorite part of uh, any group setting, is to try to wrestle with the questions that may be on, on y'all's minds. Um, and so my journey starts uh, in Nuremberg, Germany. I was born in 1961. Uh, I would spend some time in Virginia after that, but my memory really starts in Vicenza, Italy, which is a little hole in the Adriatic coast of uh, Italy, um, and as I told the last class, it definitely left a mark. Donald Duck was an Italian, and uh, nowhere, and I know this to be true because I looked far and long, nowhere in Italy in the 1960s was there a Coca-Cola. <laughs> they give you all the wine you want, and to this day, I promise you, because I have no real reason not to drink alcohol, it's just that I don't drink, right, because I was so focused on looking for Coca-Colas and Pepsis, that when I got back to the States, that's just what I stuck with. Um, but it was there that I actually believe that my passion for public service began, because like most children, we're, inquisit we're an inquisitive lot, and we ask a lot of questions, and we're like, well, why do we have to move? Why are we doing this? What are we doing this for? And my parents would try to teach me about NATO, and, um, and so I'm like, well, why are we in NATO? And then they still talk about the presidency and Congress. And I'm like, well, what do you have to do to be a congressman? Now, remember, this is the 1960s. And so they say, well, you have to be a lawyer. I'm like, you mean like Perry Mason? <laughs> Perry Mason was this lawyer on TV who never lost a case. He had Dallas Scott, his aide, and his, uh, Paul, his investigator, and they never lost a case. The whole time, I'm like, I can do that. And so um, my course was set early on to, uh, to be a lawyer and to go into public service. I'd like to believe that my thought process matured over time, but cer certainly the seeds of that process were um, 
planet in, in Vicenza, Italy in the early 60s. Um, so I would go uh, through school. I graduated from American University, came here to the law school. Uh, awesome three years here. Um, obviously met Colette, made some great friends. Alex and Mildred actually gave me decent grades. So I, I got out, I was able to, be, to get employed. Um, and I actually started with a law firm called Browder, Russell, Morris, and Butcher, doing insurance defense work, the very opposite of what I would end up doing. I was a state farm defense attorney, and I loved it. It was an awesome, awesome job. And then uh, Colette and I got married in 1988, and uh, we are attracted to each other, so our first child starts coming in 1989. And <laughs> it's just a fact, dear. <laughs> You know, I actually came to the law school saying I wasn't going to marry a lady lawyer, right? But it's been, it's been beautiful. And um, yeah, I'm going to stop there before I get in trouble. Bernard and Sharon know a lot of the stories, but I think they're going to just stay in-house for now. Um, and so our first child is on the way, and I'm, I'm uh, down in uh, Blackstone, Virginia, coming back. When I, uh, well, actually, I'm not coming back yet. I'm doing a deposition. I get a phone call from one of my buddies, a guy named David Corrigan, who says, you got to get back here. you got to get back here. And so I'm flying up the road. I'm getting a traffic. I'm getting a speeding ticket. I'm going through toll booths. And I get back, and the law firm has decided to dissolve itself. I'm like, okay, this is a shock to me because my generation was able to see their parents work at one place for 20, 30 years. My dad was an army officer, then went to work for the phone company. My mom was a school teacher. One job, pension, out the door you go, right? Retirement. And now my law firm is breaking up. There's a child on the way. And, uh, and Colette used to laugh at me about this saying, but I said, I can do bad by myself, right? <laughs> and so um, while I would go off with one of the spinoffs of that law firm, um, I ended up actually starting my own law firm, Mike Eachin and G, in 1990. Ironically, we would also start off doing insurance defense work, and then um, as that work dried up, we were blessed enough to be able to transition into doing plaintiff's work, which is the, I'm, I'm sorry to anyone in here who might feel differently, you're just wrong. Plaintiff's work is the best work of all. It's just amazing. Uh, actually representing individuals and trying to get them a measure of justice is a, is a wonderful, wonderful process. And so we, um, and as it turned out, that was as um, a lot of situations that seemed messy and stormy at first, that was a real blessing because if I was going to be able to run for office, I would have eventually had to have left my law firm that I was at um, because most law firms have a lobbying practice. Most law firms want you to do billable hours of a certain amount, and none of that is necessarily um, jives with a, 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 a career in politics. And so it was going to happen anyway, I suspect, and this just sort of uh, moved the needle faster than I expected it to, do, expected it to, expected it to happen. And so uh, it's 1991, and I'm living in South Richmond, and I run for office, and I get beat bad. Horrible, horrible. I got beat like 60-40. Uh, and that's probably being generous. It's probably worse than that. And um, one of the lessons, and <laughs> there's nothing like losing an election. That is just the worst feeling in the world, right? I mean, I'm laying on the couch. I can't move. I'm paralyzed. And, you know, all my dreams are dashed. But, you know, the one thing that you 
learn from that is, is that your wife still loves you the next day. Lord knows the children still need you to get up the next day and you got to go to work. So you found a way to keep pushing on. And that's an invaluable, invaluable lesson. At least it was for me. The other lesson I learned was it was time to move because I could put 40, 50 people in the street going door to door for me, but they were all from North Richmond. I'm living in South Richmond. They're all my mother's friends, my dad's friends. And so much to Colette's chagrin because we were living near all the really great malls in Richmond at that time. She consented, we packed up and moved to uh, what I call home, Henrico County. I sat out an election cycle and then uh, the, the next election cycle, 1995, I ran another Democratic primary and pulled off what was considered, an, and it was an upset, pulled off an upset beating the House Appropriations Chair in a Democratic primary. And um, my career began. I served in the House uh, from 1995 to 2001. And everybody knows who Mark Warner is. And he ran for governor in 2001, right? And you know that Tim Kaine ran for lieutenant governor in 2001. But unless you cheated and did some research before coming in here today, you don't have a clue as to who the attorney general nominee was. And that's because it was me. And I got the, I got the silver medal that year, not the gold. And so I'm out of politics for four years. And here's the first place I want to stop with you for a moment and suggest to you that that was a wonderful, wonderful loss because I didn't really understand what I was doing. And here's why I say that. A wise man once told me that if you're going to get into this political arena, you need to have something that's your own. And you need to, and what he meant by that is you need to have a certain economic independence. And so I had that by starting the law firm. And that certain economic independence I want to suggest to you is critical because there are so many temptations out there. There are so many bad things that can happen to you because you are in a desperate situation and you end up doing stupid stuff like keeping cash in your refrigerator and doing all sorts of wacky stuff because you're just trying to make ends meet. You've gotten yourself out there, you know, you, you've gotten to that dream job that you wanted and now you're finding out that the finances just don't work and you've got a problem. Um, Colette and I um, have this, uh, Colette's been very kind to adopt and, and incorporate what, I, what my parents uh, put into me because I was an only child. My parents always told me, do for you what was done, do for yours what was done for you. And so I went through uh, American University debt-free. I went to a private school before that. Like I told the last class, when Daddy found out that I got into UVA Law School and that's where I was going, he took a look at the tuition. He remembered the tuition from my high school and this tuition was lower. He went out and bought two Cadillacs, I promise you, <laughs> in celebration and still sent me here um, and I was able to get out of here debt-free. I know those days are over, right? I get it. Your, your tuition is a lot more than it was back in those days. Um, but um, my point is, is that I wanted to do the same for my children and I would not have been able to do that on the salary of an attorney general. Um, I can understand, and I, look, I'm about to talk about Bob McDonald for a second. I believe he's innocent. I believe the court did the right thing, all that. But I also believe, and I, I've seen the evidence, that Bob faced some temptations. Uh, as you know, he was our governor uh, before Terry McAuliffe. Five children, he's the only one working and trying to do things for them. He faced awful, awful temptations and got himself into some jams that he otherwise probably would not have done. 
my point is this, uh, folks. If you're going to do this, you've got to be in a position to afford it. I'm sorry that that's the way of the world, but if you don't, if you're not, in, if you're not willing to make the sacrifices necessary, I didn't say you have to be wealthy. Remember that. I didn't say you have to be wealthy. I said you have to be willing to sacrifice to get into these positions. If you're not willing to make those financial sacrifices, then you don't need to be in the business because something's going to reach out and grab you and bite you. And I was just blessed that um, I lost that election, really, because I could not have done that on an attorney general's salary. In fact, but for the fact that my youngest daughter was graduating from college the same year that this congressional seat opened up, I wouldn't have been able to run for Congress either because that particular child cost more than her two siblings combined <laughs> to go to school. So <laughs> she, was, she was a particular challenge. Um, but she's got a job. And she's got benefits, daggone it. She just doesn't understand that she is our retirement plan. That's the real deal. <laughs> but we'll, we'll bring that news to her later. And so um, the other wonderful thing that happened to me is that during that, during that time in the, uh, in the wilderness, as it were, I found my way to seminary. There were things happening in our family life that I wanted to be able to have conversations with my children at the kitchen table. I had, I had and continue to have a fine pastor, but there were some things that you just want to be able to talk to your children about from a theological perspective. Another thing, and I'm, I may be getting ready to step on some toes, but that's all right. You all will have permission to push back in just a minute when I shut up. The other thing that, uh, was, that I found fortunate in that journey was that I was able to label the problem that I saw with the General Assembly. Sometimes you need some more education before you can figure out what it is that was nagging you about your service in the General Assembly. And what was nagging me about my service in the General Assembly was that the General Assembly was, and to a lesser degree today, is still captured by what I call empire theology. It's a theology that uses scripture, whatever that, whatever that holy writ that you might read, it uses scripture to constrain people, to stop people from being the children of God that they were meant to be. I could only know that by going to, I didn't know I was doing this at the time, I ended up in the hotbed of the religious left. I didn't even know there was a religious left when I went to seminary. But Virginia Union is the hotbed of the religious left. And there I discovered the notion of liberation theology, a theology that says God's word is meant to enhance your life, God's word is meant to um, give you the, the freedom to be the person that God wants you to be. And that is a completely different perspective for me. Um, but it enabled me to label the problem that I saw. And it also, and this is a little bit embarrassing to admit, but it also gave me an anchor that I didn't have during the first part of my political career. I went into seminary in 2005, and as I shared with the last class, I like to say that God has jokes. Because in 2005, it was also the year, and I didn't know this was going to happen, that I would go back to the House of Delegates. Now, that's not to suggest that I am God's agent or that I always get things right. It's just to suggest that God has jokes, because now he's sending me to seminary at the same time that I'm going back to the, going back to the legislature. It was there in seminary, when I would go into the 07 election cycle, that I... Um, was really being exposed to this notion of creation care. Because if I'm honest with you, and I'm transparent with you, I have to admit that I was agnostic about the environment before going to seminary. I mean, I had some votes here, I had some votes there, but I didn't really have an orientation about the environment. And so it was in seminary that I began to be exposed to creation care. And so that's sort of happening in the spiritual, right? And then in the natural, there's this woman who's just 
totally ticked off with the person I'm running against for state senate. And she is walking with me in the sunshine, in the heat, getting my petition signed. She is out there, you know, in the rain, getting my petition signed. She ends up knowing Colette's birthday, how many children we have. I know her story. And she is just all up in my ear about the environment. It is the only thing she cares about, and particularly the James River. Right? But she is all in my ear about the environment. And uh, it was just a wonderful a wonderful synergy was happening in my life. And so um, I have tried since then to be the very best environmental legislator that I know how to be. Um, it was a steep learning curve, learning about renewable energies, learning about externalities, and now going and serving on natural resources. And uh, I, my, I drive my staff crazy, but you know we, we're worried about critters and, and parks and things like that, but it's expanded my view of the environment in such a way, and I like to consider it a healthy way, um, that um, I, I'm really pleased and happy with the progress that at least I've made personally in, in the environmental movement. One of the questions that is usually posed to me is, uh, what is the biggest challenge for a, a legislator? Uh, obviously, I have the lens of an African-American male um, so I can only tell you what my challenge was, uh, my biggest challenge. But the biggest challenge for me is getting out of the box. And what do I mean by that? If you let the media, and it's, not, it's nothing about the institution of the, of the legislature, it's the media, it's perception. If you let the media define you, they will come to me all day long and twice on Sundays to talk about criminal justice reform, civil rights, all of that. I am a proud, proud, proud child of the African diaspora. I am proud to be descendant from people who were strong enough to endure the hardships of the Middle, uh, middle Passage, both mentally and physically, and to endure slavery. However, there's more to me than that. And so while I have strong opinions about criminal justice reform, while I have strong opinions about civil rights, I have equally strong opinions about the environment. I have equally strong opinions about national defense. I have equally strong opinions about how we treat our military and how we treat our veterans. And so being able to get outside that box and getting folks to talk to you about other issues, I think is the biggest challenge. And I'm not here to suggest to you that one particular group doesn't have that challenge over the other. I'm sure all people come with that same challenge of getting outside the box so that people see you as the multi-dimensional person that you are. But that is a particular challenge, I think, for people of color because they're going to assume if you're Asian, they're going to talk to you about immigration. If you're African-American, they're going to want to talk to you about civil rights and criminal justice reform. You know, we have done... My, and I have to I owe it to my staff, we've done yeoman's work in getting attention on our office about our environmental positions, which I think is the most important issue of the 21st century. It is a, you, you name the issue, it covers it. It is a civil rights issue. It is a justice issue. It's an issue that will define how our children and our children's children live for the balance of this century. It's the issue that we absolutely cannot afford to get wrong. Um, and we've been able to get, have some success in getting some attention and, and getting our views out on that. But it's hard work because the media does not believe in coming to asking African-American men about the environment, at least not of my age. Now, you younger folks, the, you know, you guys, which I told the last class, you all are going to fix everything. I'm absolutely convinced of it because you all have the right attitude. Um, and you all may not have that same challenge, but the challenge for me was getting outside the box. 
So, um, as I said, the, the uh, congressional opportunity opened up in uh, 19, uh, I'm sorry, 2015, ironically, behind a lawsuit. Bobby Scott, who is the congressman from the 3rd Congressional District, used to represent basically everything from, from Newport News to Richmond. And the court ruled that the district had been gerrymandered in such a way as to minimize the ability of African Americans to be able to influence elections in other districts. And so after giving the legislature a chance to cure, they, wrote, they drew the lines themselves. Ironically, neither Bobby nor I have a majority-minority district, but we're both in Congress, which is a testament to Virginia in, in 20, uh, well, we got elected in 2016 and 2016, and, you know, we'll work hard and in, uh, in raise the money necessary to get reelected, but we feel like that's a, that's a, a better-than-even proposition that we'll be reelected in 2018 as well. Now, don't go tell anybody that because I still have money to raise, okay? <laughs> Delete that from the camera, please. Thank you. But um, so that's a little bit about my journey. That's a little bit about how I got here. But let's wrestle with some of your questions. What's on y'all's minds? Yes, ma'am. Hi, my name is Kimberly Dolphin. I'm too well And where are you from? I'm from Hampton, Virginia. Hampton, all right. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate hearing your story. Uh, my question has to do with being a champion of all people versus being the champion of people who look like you. Um, you just said that you, uh, neither you nor Representative Scott has uh, majority-minority districts. Um, how did you go about making sure that your branding was such that you didn't get pigeonholed to certain people who look like you or certain people who are just minorities in general and making sure that you, know, you could, be, you could uh, set the platform as you did? Um, I will try to speak for Bobby a little bit, but Bobby has most of his political career, well, let me rephrase that. Bobby, in the beginning of his political career, was elected from districts that were majority, majority districts. So he's never had to have to worry about overcoming that. And I can't really speak to the political dynamics that led to that, other than he's obviously an outstanding legislator and an outstanding campaigner. For me, if there were, there are 200,000 people in a Senate district, there are roughly 750 to 800,000 people in a congressional district. Um, I had the advantage of having about 150,000 of my constituents drawn into the fourth congressional, the new fourth congressional district. I had the added advantage of being uh, as one uh, one uh, Richmond Circuit judge said, much to his chagrin. He was a UVA law graduate that I was the first UVA lawyer to advertise on TV, right? <laughs> so Mackeechan and G had elevated my profile in other areas outside of, um, outside of the district. And so I had fairly good, I had very good name recognition, to be honest with you. And so those things helped. Um, I was already, I'd already sort of branded myself both through my legislative service and through my law practice. And so those things helped me overcome uh, any any challenges with that, but the reality is is that both districts, although not majority minority, are, are very democratic. I got 58 percent of the vote. Hillary got 58 percent of the vote in my district, so that makes us like a plus 16. I don't know how they come up with those numbers, but that makes it like a D plus 16 district. And so, um, you know, the the challenge is getting the nomination and then uh, moving forward and making sure you don't screw up the general. Does that answer your question? Almost. I primarily meant um, 
relates to um, you know convincing uh, not only white counterparts but also uh, anyone you would encounter along your journey that doesn't necessarily think like you, uh, the mechanisms, the ways in which you would try to persuade and convince and show through example that uh, stereotypes. So it's amazing. It's an amazing thing, and I, I can share this with you because I've seen the polling data my own personal polling data on what people believe, right? If people like you, they assume that you, you think like they think. <laughs> they do. Because why else would, how else could they possibly like you? And so because I was able to have a likable persona in the greater Richmond area, most people in Richmond think that I think like them. And, 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 and I probably do think like the majority, in, in all honesty. But I didn't have to do much persuasion in the campaign sense because I had you know, 20 years or nearly 20 years in the legislature of being in the newspapers, you know, 25 years of being a TV lawyer and you know, painting yourself in the best light possible. So all those things helped me not have to do that from scratch. I didn't have that challenge of having to do that from scratch. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Hi, uh, my name's Jasmine Lee, and I'm from the Midlothian Chesterfield area. All right, <laughs> almost home. <laughs> Don't tell me you remember my commercials when you were in like fifth grade, okay? Yeah. Don't go there. <laughs> Don't go there. But um, well, my question really is, being in the Richmond area for so long, for so much of your career, how have you noticed um, the change in, like, I guess, the Richmond area politics or in the demographics of Richmond and how Richmond's sort of been leading or trending? So when, when you say Richmond, I'm going to talk about Metro Richmond, okay? <laughs> Uh, one of the best kept secrets about Henrico County is that outside of Northern Virginia, it is the county with the most students, let me make sure I get this right, students in, in, you know, in K through 12 that have English as a second language. So think about, that's not your grandfather's Henrico County. That's a Henrico County that's morphing into something different and you've seen that in terms of the election results. I mean, I've been there long enough to go from you know, the Democratic Committee being able to meet in a phone booth to the Democratic Committee having to meet in an auditorium like this. And so, and you've seen the transition because of the demographic changes that you talk about. And it's happening in your home county of Chesterfield, right? We just saw that for the first time since forever, since 1961, a Democratic governor carried Chesterfield County. Now, it wasn't by a lot, it wasn't a landslide, but that's, you know, it never starts like that, right? It always is a little chip away, chip away, chip away. And so I don't know all the particulars of the demographics in Chesterfield County, but I know that Chesterfield is starting to look more like Richmond and Henrico than the, old, in, in the Chesterfield of old days. Yes, sir. My name is Elijah McDonough. I'm from New York. And I wanted to say thank you for taking the time to come and talk to us and sure. questions. Uh, I wanted to ask you, how do you reconcile the incentives uh, you face that all politicians face in this country in terms of political economy with actually uh, going out and accomplishing the meaningful and substantive uh, life-changing work that you set out to do in your career? Tell me what you mean by political economy. Uh, just the incentives that politicians face that sometimes seem counterintuitive or nonsensical. Like, say a politician inherits a budget deficit. Uh, they can either cut spending and raise taxes uh, and handle the deficit, or they could uh, you know, raise spending and lower taxes, uh, which will make their constituents happy, but will be nothing to address the budget deficit and the uh, fiscally responsible action is what 
you know, and there's a constituents, maybe they had a tough time getting reelected. So I want to ask like how you deal with things like that that you deal with in your day to day uh, and reconcile that with actually accomplishing the things that you set out to do. Well, you try to remember, um, and I, this is going to be horribly, horribly pejorative, but um, I believe that my party does a better job of that because we have a basic belief that, that government is supposed to work. And so that's why you can see a Bill Clinton come into office and raise taxes, even though he knows he's going to lose the midterms to retire debt because he knows that's the fiscally responsible and policy-wise thing to do. That's why you can have a Barack Obama come in and say, you know what, I've got, you know, I've got both chambers, I'm going to go ahead and get universal health care, even though it might cost me in the midterms. Um, I almost never see that type of reaction out of the other side, right? The, the reason why they're going to lose the midterms this year is because of the orange guy in the White House, right? I mean, the, I mean, he's just the gift that just doesn't stop giving. It's an amazing thing. And so the anger, and, and we will win despite ourselves. Don't, don't let any Democrat tell you that we're winning this election because we're so great. We are Democrats. We are perfectly capable of screwing things up. But the anger that's out there and the wave that's starting to build is what's going to get us over the top. It's going to be the citizens of this country that put us back in power, not our genius. And it'll be our challenge, and I think we're up to the challenge, to govern wisely. And so because of that sort of difference in, in viewpoint, I think, um, we don't have as big a challenge with that issue as some of our Republican colleagues do. Because how do you explain a party that's supposed to be fiscally responsible doing what they just did, right? Not only did they take a, a million five, oh, I'm sorry, $1.5 trillion and give it to the wealthiest Americans and give us a deficit to start with, then they put together a budget plan that does another trillion five being generous. So that's at least $3 trillion in debt. And again, that's being generous on, on that side. You know, this is the party that's supposed to be fiscal hawks. Um, this is the party that's supposed to be national defense hawks. You know, None of them are, are, you know, really wailing on the president for allowing Russia to continue to attack us as they have uh, through, through the election process. So, you know, it, it's been a disappointing thing to see in the other side. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's where your question took me. Okay. Yes, ma'am. My part of Chesapeake or Bobby Scott's part of Chesapeake? You don't know who your congressman is, do you? <laughs> All right, we're going to answer the question anyway. Um, my question is just what your favorite part of the job is. Oh, wow, there's so much. Um, the interaction with my colleagues, uh, wrestling with public policy issues, forums like this. But I think the best part of it is is constituent service because when you actually get the system to work for somebody, right, when... And is, where's Eldon? That's Eldon Burton, my district director back there. Y'all need to give him a hand clap. <laughs> when Eldon and his staff can get a call, you know, on Tuesday and somebody says, I forgot all about my visa and I'm leaving on Wednesday or Thursday and we make it happen for them, that's a good feeling. When somebody, you know, isn't getting their disability checked the way they're supposed to or, the, or veterans not being uh, dealt with by the VA the way they're supposed to and we can start the process of making that work better, that's something that's really cool. So I think that's the part that's really the best part of public service. Yes, sir. Hey, Congressman, I'm Kevin Donovan. Um, I work at the law school. 
I was curious uh, what you think the odds are that we'll get either a DACA bill or a gun control bill through the House this, this month. This month? Yeah. None. <laughs> uh, yeah, about a month left in DACA, right? Yeah, well, I think we'll get... Uh, I think we'll get DACA done. Well, you know, I don't know. Because here's what's happening with DACA. The president has insisted on pitting, pitting immigration groups against immigration groups, right? He's insisted on the DACA kids versus family reunification, which he likes to call chain migration, and diversity visas, which he likes to call lottery. Um, lottery, the, the diversity visas are off the table as far as the Senate's concerned, right? They'll never get the 60 votes to do away with that program. And so it comes down to whether or not we can make a deal on a family reunification, but in my view, there's no place to deal because he has exaggerated what you can do with family reunification. He would like you to believe that you can bring in your, you know, your parents, Lottie, Dottie, and every doggone body. But the reality is, is that you can't go that far, right? You get to, you know, maybe a brother or a sister that level. You don't get aunts, uncles, and cousins in. So, you know, I don't know how much more you can restrict family reunification. Um, but I'll say this. I would think that the DACA bill is coming along before a real gun safety legislation. But thank God for those kids in Florida. They're keeping it alive. Yes, ma'am. Hey, Miss Duval. Uh, I've seen you work your magic with folks from across the aisle, and um, I'm just wondering if you had any tips for people in talking across difference. Kind of, how do you find common ground with folks who may think differently from you on any number of political issues? I think you, uh, you 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 pick your spots, and you just have to understand that the word compromise is not a bad word. It's the only way that a country this big and this diverse can ever work is that there's, there's compromising going on. Um, obviously, you, you, you can't make everything happen, but you, you try to, first of all, you have to have some sort of relationship with the person on the other side. Uh, it, that goes beyond just being a legislator. Um, for instance, Morgan Griffith and I have things in common, and uh, he'll come and share books with me, and I'll share books with him. Morgan Griffith, if you don't know, is the congressman from the, from the 9th Congressional District. Our service together started in the House of Delegates when I was in the majority and he was in the minority, and so we've had a chance to work back and forth together like that. And so that, you know, you know helping somebody out when you're on top, allows them to help you out when, you, when they're on top. And so it's, it's that sort of thing. It's, the, it's what you learned in kindergarten, playing nice with others. That's all it is. That's really all it is, is playing nice with others in the sandbox. Yes, yes sir. We'll go you and then you. And you know that, right? I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Can you for a few minutes? You might remember me. So I, um, you were a pioneer in LGBT rights in Virginia. I remember lobbying you with all in Virginia and the Richmond Organization for Sexual Minority Youth for years. Um, and you, believe me, my senator at the time, and Dolores McCormick my delegate, and you were always at the forefront uh, of the movement, willing to sponsor bills, um, and take a stand and come to the equality of Virginia receptions and speak to us. Um, at a time where I feel like the Democratic Party was very fragmented on LGBT issues. And so I just wanted to say thank you for that one. Um, but also, 
how do you go about more than just playing nice, really dealing with uh, issues, um, contentious issues even within the Democratic Party itself? Well, you know, it, you sometimes you have to be willing to be um, wily e. coyote and just run smack into that wall, but you'll leave an imprint and eventually the wall will cave. Um, and that's a lot what, what has happened with the, we like to say we evolved in Democratic Party politics, but that's a lot what happened with, in Democratic Party politics when it came to LGBTQ issues, is that people were willing to run into a wall and leave an imprint and the wall eventually falls. And I think, you, you know, that's what I mean by, by picking your spots. Sometimes it's playing nice and sometimes it's like, you know what, Go ahead, kill my bill, but I'm going to go down, and I'm going to go down dying a horrible, horrible death. But I'm going to, you know, you're going to know that I was here. Yes, sir. Well, my name is Bruce Utovic. Um, you briefly adverted to fundraising, which is unfortunately a huge part of our political life in this country. Uh, I was wondering how much of your time does that occupy? How do you avoid allowing that to become a distraction or to influence you in the world? Um, well, number one, we have, I'm getting ready to compare and contrast something I'm going to try to get it right. In the, in the federal system, we obviously have limits. And, you know, you can, if you're wealthy enough to do so, you can max out between you and your spouse at 10-8 to us. There's nobody on this planet that can buy me for $10,800. I am just not that cheap. Okay, that's number one. No, Number two, so you say, well, Donald, what about the General Assembly? Because, you know, Virginia's the wild, wild west of fundraising. There are no limits. You can take it from anybody as long as it's not a foreigner. Um, there are practical limits in the General Assembly because nobody's giving out money like that. I mean, you, you don't see anybody outside of maybe a gubernatorial election stroking $100,000, $200,000 checks. And I would suggest even in that case, um, people's integrity is such that they, you, just, you just don't buy them off. The problem comes in, if there's a problem, it's not with the donations. It's whether or not that person who holds the office is financially sound enough to deal with the other temptations, right? Because, you know, if all of a sudden I need to get some, hey, you know what, I got to manage two homes now, right? I got to have a home in my, in my district, and I got to have a home up in uh, D.C. And, oh, oh, and by the way, they just left me just outside my district. So now I got to move into my district. Can anybody give me a good mortgage? You know, wink, wink, a good mortgage. That's the problem. And so you have to have folks who are financially uh, sound enough to be able to resist that, right? Because I actually, when I described that problem, I actually had a mortgage lender say to me, well, you know, if you need some help, I'm like, nope, we're good, right? And, and he didn't mean anything nefarious, right? He was just being nice. But, you know, you have to be in a position to say, nope, we're good, we're going to be all right. So I think that's more of the problem than the outright giving. Yes, sir. Uh, thank you for coming. This question is actually similar to Bruce. Um, what do you say to the disheartened voter who feels as though the representative doesn't, you know, represent their interests, but instead represents, you know, the interests of the Oh, and let me back up. I'm get to that. Uh, you said how much of my day is. I probably do at least two hours of call time every day, um, just because there's so much money that has to be raised, and the and the, ink, and the dollar amounts are fairly small to, compared to how much you need. Um, 
Well, first of all, I hope those folks are not my constituents who feel that way. Um, but, you know, to, to be perfectly, on, perfectly honest with you, what I would tell that person is you need to be more engaged and more active because invariably that person that I have seen, now your experience may be different, but invariably that person I have seen has not joined a po political committee, has not really participated in the election process, hasn't really volunteered for a campaign, hasn't been in the game. Um, I usually tell folks that politics is a contact sport and you have to stay in contact with us whether it's by word or by campaign or by whatever. And so those folks who don't engage in the process, I think it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? They don't engage, they become disgruntled. They, don't, they become disgruntled, they don't see any actions that they like, and then they stay disengaged. The one thing that I think, that I hope that you all will take away from this and that the generations that follow you will take away from this is that we can't afford to be disengaged anymore. You know, your group has to remain engaged in the process, no matter how cynical you may get, because look what happens when you're not engaged. This is what happens. This is what non-engagement looks like. This is the government you have in Washington is a result of not being engaged. Hillary got the same percentage of votes in every demographic category as Obama did. She just didn't have the turnout. Now you can say that was because of Russian meddling, might have been. You can say that was because of the, the independent Green candidate, might have been. But we need to get, we, but there are a whole lot of people who sat on the sidelines. You know what, I'm sorry you didn't like Hillary, but you had a choice, you didn't make a choice, and this is what we get. You have to stay engaged. Please join me in thanking Congressman. Thank you.